It's the Wonky Show. We're talking about skills and social mobility, what happens to black graduates, when free speech isn't really free speech, and the latest from the regulation circus in England. It's all coming up. I'm not convinced how easy it's going to be for the OFS to take enforcement action where it thinks it's necessary without damaging the interests of students at that provider. And the reason I say that is that in most other sectors where there is enforcement action, there are alternatives for the consumers who are affected by the, regu- the, 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 the breaches that the regulators identify. They can move energy provider, they can book an airline, book a flight with a different airline. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us upskill the HE policy scene as usual, we have three fantastic guests. In Birmingham, it's Smita Jamdar, Head of Education for Shakespeare Martineau. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. Um, I will take the liberty, if I may, Mark, of saying that I have two. Uh, one is a fabulous dinner that we um, had with uh, Wonky, which was to promote some discussion around HEFE collaborations, something that I feel very, very passionate about. Um, and the second is a personal one. Uh, I am spending the day in London uh, for my wedding anniversary, including for the first time ever going to the Globe to watch Romeo and Juliet. So really looking forward to that. And in his attic in Camberwell, it's Johnny Rich, CEO of the Engineering Professors Council and Push. Johnny, your heart of the week, please. Well, uh, later today, I will be, I hope, passing the latest milestone in my own lifelong learning journey. Um, having grown up in a family that believed it was congenitally and laughably tone deaf, and uh, not a thing, by the way, uh, three years ago, I started taking singing lessons. And this afternoon, I will be having my latest performance exam. And in his very own way station on the M5 HE data corridor, it's Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Um, I'm afraid my highlight of the week, the very simple one, I was really ill last week i had that um rotten cold that's going around and i think i'm over it now so that's my highlight is not being ill hurrah and i'm going to throw in my highlight of the week which was launching the new homepage of wonky.com uh, it's been a bit of a labor of love check it out i hope you enjoy it right we start this week with the big skills debate there's a bill going through parliament and a lot of action on the margins dk what's going on so the report stage of the skills and post-16 education bill um Traditionally, in the the House of Lords is where the bills face their first real test, and it's at the report stage after the committee stage where we start actually getting the votes that are going to shape the bill away from the way the government intends it to be. Now, um, the uh, post the uh, skills and uh, post sixteen education bill is a strange old bill. I imagine we'll shortly be hearing the words of Lord Baker on just what a peculiar thing it is, in that it is linked to some hugely transformative uh, policies about um, embedding the needs of local employers into uh, skills planning in FE and adult skills provision and of course the lifelong learning entitlement which might or might not make the entire of HE modular um, pretty much by default but none of this detail is on the face of the bill the the, the, the uh, bill is kind of very dry it is very technical and the Lords so far have found it quite difficult to get a handle on being able to talk about what little they know about the underlying policy while putting an amendment to such a strange little bill so it came to a head with the issue of closing down BTEX, 
Now, uh, the government wants to introduce uh, T levels. It's committed to that. Um, but to do so, it wants to cancel basically all of the other um, vocational and technical qualifications that people take post-16. And some of these, such as the BTECs, are very popular and importantly for the sector are a key way for people from disadvantaged backgrounds who might not have come from the background where doing GCSEs and then A-levels is a thing to enter university. Hugely important, as Lord Baker reminded us, uh, to the um, the UK uh, black community where a large majority of students from that background do enter university uh, via the BTEC route. So the government was defeated on this, which means that um, a four-year moratorium on cancelling these qualifications is now on the face of the bill. And it's kicked off an absolutely massive campaign. And here's that clip of Lord Baker in the, in the debate over skills. So disabled students are going to be disadvantaged in this reform landscape. Scrap the blasted landscape. It is really absolutely disgusting. And quite frankly, I'm very ashamed that a Conservative government has done this. What you're denying to lots of people, black, Asian, ethnic minority, disadvantaged and disabled students, hope and aspiration. The Conservative Party at the moment has been accused of abandoning lots of the things that traditionally it has lived by. Well, one of the things it has lived by is improvement in education. Reflecting my own family, my grandfather left school at 12, my father left school at 16, elementary school, and studied all sorts of other things to get on to leave as eventually become a senior civil servant. That is what conservatives believe in, hope and aspiration. And yet this denies hope and aspiration. Or as Browning said, the reach should exceed the grasp or what's a heaven for. They're denied that reach. This is a shaming thing. I'm very ashamed that a Conservative government could do it. And all I can say to your Lords, I apologise for the government. Yeah, so this, this campaign, this real pushback against uh, scrapping BTEX, it seems long overdue, but it, it's, it's kind of, for many observers, I guess, interesting that, it, interesting that it's finally come about. I mean, Johnny, it's very clear, isn't it, that just removing them, replacing them with T-levels isn't going to meet the government's stated objectives on skills, is it? No, I mean, the reason they want to um, get rid of T-levels is because they know that, sorry, get rid of BTECs is because they know that T-levels might fail if there's a recognised competitor qualification in the vocational space. But that's not the real reason that T-levels might, well, probably will fail, I'm afraid to say. I'm really sorry to say that because I'd love to see them succeed. They're a great idea in theory, but in practice, they'll involve a minimum of 45 days of in-work learning. And that's just not going to be deliverable at the scale needed to provide a workable alternative to A-levels or a workable replacement for BTECs. Because, I mean, imagine you're an employer. To manage the work experience kid, the T-level student, to keep them busy, to give them productive things to do, to stop them damaging themselves with the parcel tape, you're going to have to allocate some of your staff. And each staff member works for you for about 200 days a year after weekends and holidays. And are you really going to let them spend nearly a quarter of that time overseeing someone who, by definition, doesn't yet have the skills or experience to be productive? And remember, your alternative to getting involved in T-levels is to manage an apprentice who basically costs you nothing and actually works for you and will do so if you want them after they're qualified. So it's pretty much a no-brainer for a lot of employers. And in a blog I wrote... um, 
back in July, I think it was, uh, I described the defunding of BTEX as being like burning all your clothes because you've heard Primark is having a sale next month. Uh, you know, when, when the sale does arrive, it's probably not going to be as good as you think it's going to be. And in the meantime, you're naked. I think that's a fabulous um, analogy, uh, Johnny. And, and Mark, I just wanted to pick up um, some of the complications around this, this, this idea that we were going to have loads and loads of placements available um, for every student who wanted to do T-levels. Um, when we did the inquiry into degree apprenticeships with the HE Commission, one of the things we sort of picked up, which perhaps isn't surprising, but maybe gets overlooked, is that if you adopt that sort of approach, you run the risk of reinforcing disadvantage. Um, because rural areas, parts of the country where there maybe aren't the big employers who are willing to put the um, 45 days into uh, providing a placement, students in those areas are probably already disadvantaged in the labour market are going to be further disadvantaged. And so I think that the, the, the T-level issue has is, got all sorts of problems, as Johnny said. And the, sec the point I wanted to make about BTEX was in every discussion we have about future skills, changes to the education system, people look longingly at other parts of the world where stability is the norm, i.e. You, you take something, you build it, and you leave it to get on with doing what it's doing for, for good. Um, and here we just seem to have an almost kind of preternatural desire to change things. And the act of change is what we see as the achievement. We've, we've revolutionised rather than thinking, well, how do we build on what we've already got that is working? And I think it's a real shame if um, the, the sort of BTEC baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, frankly. Branwyn Jeffries from the BBC had a really interesting tweet yesterday where she'd apparently um, collared Michelle Donnellan on the subject, uh, who said that the final decision had not yet been made on BTEX, which, given that they put it in the bill, seems a strange, <laughs> strange line to take. It's not quite in the bill, to be fair. It's, it's <laughs> obliquely in the bill. But I, I, guess um, I guess this means that, you know, there may be some, there may be some, between the passage of the bill and, and kind of this external pressure, there may be some wiggle room. You do have to hope so. I mean, the other problem that uh, Lord Baker reported was T-levels, which I just have to include in the podcast, because it's so just... Um, a basic fundamental problem is that, uh, I mean, obviously we've started doing trials of T-levels already. Um, not even this government is mad enough to just start doing a, a completely untested qualification with the entire country. And what they've found in these trials is that the qualifications don't really suit kids that haven't got good GCSEs. They are, in a word, they are too academic. So in this quest for, oh, you have to have um, a parity with A-levels, which is absolutely uh, correct. It should just be kind of based around what um, young people actually want to do with their lives and what they're interested in and what they care about. Uh, we seem to have confused, once again, the idea of um, equality of um, esteem, um, a parity of esteem, rather, with um, uh, making everything more academic. It's back to Michael Gove era, era policy, and it just you just feel like none of this stuff has been properly thought through. It's quite painful. As a, a evergreen statement for our for our times to hear. <laughs> it is indeed, yes. Um, but there's, there's something else going on here, isn't there, about about the reframing of of social mobility? You know, this Alan Francis piece. Um, oh yeah, is, is, is interesting for policy exchange. I mean, what what is going on in the background here? So, I mean, I would urge people to read the Alan Francis uh, paper this is, he's, he's, for he's policy of, is exchange. Is it Oldham, Oldham College? Is that right? He, I think, I'm not sure it's Oldham College. It's certainly an FE college in the Oldham area. Um, so, he's written a paper called "Rethinking Social Mobility for the Leveling Up Era for Policy Exchange." This is notable because he is the deputy chair of the Social Mobility Commission now, and he spells out what I think is the new orthodoxy of um, 
the um, new orthodoxy of what social mobility means, because this is something that appears to be up for definition at the moment. Um, so the likes of Catherine Burblesing, the new chair, and Alan have defined social mobility not about the idea that there are a set of elite roles, elite positions in society, and we have to make sure that these positions are open to everybody, no matter their background, which is seen very much as old hat. The new model is that social mobility is just about helping everybody uh, get to do uh, what they want in the place that they want to be in, which is a bit, uh, it's kind of motherhood and apple pie in that it's difficult to argue against. But what this means in question is, um, rather than thinking, and apologies to Smita here, there are way too many posh lawyers and um, we think perhaps the legal system might benefit from um, a breadth of perspective um, rather than just people who have had loads of very academic education. Um, um, and it's moved away from that to like, look, okay, some people want to be um, um, want to be plasterers and we should help them be plasterers. And the bizarre thing about that is it's a, a tautologist. There is, n- there is nobody in the world that's stopping people and is saying, mate, you can't be a plasterer. There is nobody. I mean, the smartest guy that I know locally is an electrician. He's an incredible guy. He's never been to uni and he has just done the stuff that he wants to do with his life and he is really happy. And there is nothing that stops people from doing any job that they want to do apart from the elite jobs where sometimes it does help an awful lot to have rich parents or or have gone to the right school or the right university. And it just feels like at the moment that we're moving away from that emphasis on entry to these um, elite roles into um, a kind of um, we all the children shall have a prizes model in which everything's an elite role. So that's okay then, isn't it? Um, it just doesn't ring true for me. And um, I got, as you'll probably see if you read my piece on the site, which went out this morning, I got quite actually kind of ranty about it, which is not like me. Um, I just don't know who benefits from this kind of thinking. It just feels wrong to me. It- David, can I come in there? Not just because I obviously feel the need to respond to the barb about posh lawyers, but also because if there's one thing I'm good at, it is in fact ranting. Um, and so, you know, that is... That is <laughs> and that's why we keep having you back <laughs> um, And But I agree with you about the real sense of disquiet here. Um, and, and especially the repositioning of this is the social mobility argument. Because as you say, there is absolutely nothing... Um, at all to stop people saying we want to make sure that everybody gets the opportunity to do what they want in life, whatever that is. Um, But if you then say we're going to remove focus from changing the elite professions and and, and widening um, access to that to people from different social groups, you're not just limiting individuals who might want to do that or or, or, um, you're also, I think, fundamentally restricting our ability to change society. Because those roles bring power and influence, um, and in a, you know, I'm not saying in a massive way, but they are the they, they are the group that will shape laws. They're the group that will shape the way things develop. In the case of lawyers, but all sorts of other things, and the idea that there are just some people for whom it's not important that they do that. Um, they don't really need to aspire to that. They could just be happy doing whatever's improving their individual lives. Will mean that society never truly reflects the population. Uh, sorry, that's not that's a nonsense way of putting it. That the organisation of society never really reflects the nature of the population because it's always the same group of people in those positions of making change. And I think that's scary. It's a big thing we've given up there. 
because we've and, and you can see it in all sorts of aspects of our public life now we, we've almost gone back to the idea that there is a class born to rule and there's another set there's there's all sorts of other people who are born to have decent lives but not to rule and i just feel we've really given up on something what you're saying brings up a topic that we're coming back to later in the show which is um the black careers matter uh, paper and i don't want to sort of mess up with the schedule but the idea that um certain people are not born for high office uh, when you put when you put the racial um overtones on it it suddenly becomes obvious quite how nasty an idea this is and um the approach here is that um, social mobility, a lot of the work we do in social mobility is to, described as patronising. And I, I just keep getting upset about this because it, this word patronising keeps coming out. Gavin Williamson used it about contextual offers. And it was, I think, in an OFS document about using benchmarking to assess graduate outcomes. And now uh, it's, I'm not sure if it's actually used by Alan Francis, but it's the overtone in, in um, the paper. And as someone who's spent decades of their life on this crusade to patronise people by creating opportunities where there are none. And uh, frankly, I find it insulting. No, I, what's the word? I find it patronising. That's what I find it. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Dr. Rilla Rapper and I'm an associate professor in Durham University. This piece was written together with my dear colleague, Professor Chris Brown, and it relates to our recent project on support needs and networks for disadvantaged students during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, there's actually a lot to be said about the issues and a lack of resources that our students experienced. There was one key support actor that emerged and we really want to draw attention to it. This is the huge role that families play in student support, with often their cups of tea and coffee or empathising with worries that their children were going through. It's sadly really common to stigmatise families of disadvantaged students as lacking the right type of economic or cultural capital. We really want to argue that it's time to challenge this stereotype, but also for universities to think about how their own formal support extends and enhances student support networks so that everyone can succeed in higher education uh, with, with or without their family support. Now, there's a new report all about uh, the, the challenges black graduates face uh, when they enter the labour market, Johnny, talk us through it. Yeah, so this report called Black Careers Matter is a report from the Institute of Student Employers, which is the membership organisation of mostly large graduate recruiters. And uh, they've published some depressingly unsurprising truths about how, if you're black, the career ladder has some decidedly dodgy rungs on it. Um, there's basically discrimination at every step. Black students underperform in schools because of racist expectations, racist assessment or intersection with socioeconomic and other disadvantages. And once black students do get an education, um, entry into work is harder. Um, for every five applicants, for, sorry, for every five applications that a white applicant has to make to get an interview or a callback, a black applicant has to make eight. And once they do get a job, they face bias, all white workforces, non-inclusive cultures, and black uh, workers earn an average of one pound less per hour than their white colleagues and they get overlooked for professional development and promotion which means that they find it harder to get to the senior roles where they could change the situation for everyone else so um 90 percent of employers in the um survey that uh, was part of the ISE research, thought that black people faced additional discriminatory barriers in the workplace. And 82% said that it was a key priority for their 
business to tackle their racial diversity issues. Both of those are, um, I suppose, encouraging uh, numbers in terms of the proportion who agree. But I do find it interesting that it means that 8% agreed that there's a problem, but didn't see it as a recruitment priority to address it. Um, ISE's report doesn't just map the barriers, though. They've come up with a series of useful ideas about how they can be tackled. Uh, Professor Tristram Hooley of ISE, who I've known for many years, brilliant guy, um, has written up these ideas into a short blog on the site. And I do thoroughly recommend that. And just to pick up on one of those suggestions that's particularly relevant for our audience, um, Tristram talks about the role of universities in preparing students for a diverse workplace. Um, we need more open discussion of issues of race um, in uh, university. We need to make it everyone's issue to be inclusive, particularly those who've never had to experience exclusion. And we need to create opportunities for black people to be seen. We need senior staff, speakers, mentors, students themselves to be given those opportunities. Because after all, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah, I think that um, Johnny makes a really interesting point about the role of educating students for um, diverse workforces, not just um, how to, you know, how to participate in a, in a multicultural workforce, but also how to drive inclusion and equality and equity once you're there. And my worry is that those ideas are not necessarily currently universally accepted as either necessary or important. Um, it really breaks my heart to feel that despite all this, the evidence that Johnny's just cited of continuing disadvantage, there is this sort of growing narrative that there is no problem with inequality anymore in this country, or if there is, it's not to do with race, it's to do with other other factors, and we should just move on from the race conversation because it's too divisive. Um, and I think universities do have a really vital role in continuing to be the kind of um, ambassadors for the need for, for work like this. Uh, but they've got, you know, pressure on them uh, coming from all sides, you know, regular articles in the, in the press about how outrageous race equality and um, anti-racism measures are. So how easy it is for universities to continue to fulfil that role, I don't know. I did really like the recommendation um, on, as you say, preparing all students for uh, diverse workplaces. Um, all too often in these reports, there is a sense in which the sector feels like it's okay, the sector's doing what it needs uh, to do. It is uh, teaching and it is graduating black students and they're ready for employment. And if there is a problem, then maybe it will do some specific work with those particular students to help them get into the job that they want on and the job that they, they um deserve so what this report does that is different is it says okay uh the university needs to talk to all of its graduates about this it needs to prepare all graduates for a workplace that is um yes all made up of uh, graduates but it's made up of graduates from different backgrounds and different uh places if you're going on to a graduate traineeship scheme which is still a default mode for lots of graduates from more selective uh providers it can just become another bubble after university and if you've um been in a bubble within a bubble in a university you've not really mixed with people who aren't like you it can come as something of a shock so um rather than as often happens just assuming this is an issue employers need to sort out actually tackling all students and urging them to expand their boundaries, expand their frame of references, and um, actually just to be better employees, which is obviously a good thing. Um, uh, I think 
this is an important recommendation and i do really hope that uh, universities do take it on and it goes it's it's such an obvious thing for uh, for the commercial aims of an organization that diversity adds you know this, i i feel that we should by you know decades ago have have got past the point where we're still tackling some organizations who don't recognize that if they are more diverse they are more successful and that this is in their commercial interests to do this stuff quite apart from it being an obvious moral obligation it's a commercial obligation too i think that point about though um assuming that at some point a particular battle is won or a particular lesson is learned for all time we're surely seeing that that never happens and we're going to have to keep making those points um just because you know people easily forget them um and and start to default back to, to sort of the way they've always done things um if, if you're not careful a piece of work i'm doing at the moment which i'm finding absolutely fascinating is i've been asked by a university to chair um, a working group they've got about um, looking at attainment gaps. Um, and I, I sort of said to them, what what skill set do I have for that? And what they really wanted from me was the kind of externality and the challenge of getting them to think differently, perhaps, about what they're doing. And it seems to me that listening to them, there's no shortage at all of commitment and desire to do things. There is just perhaps not enough sharing of you know what's working even within institutions, let alone across institutions. And I'm sure that the sector's got some fantastic ways of doing things, which both other institutions and employers would benefit from hearing about um, and learning from. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's a hidden history of higher education. One of the phrases we know about higher education is this term, town and gown. It sets up an opposition between the university and the townspeople around it. And this comes from the oldest parts of our sector and, to some extent, has shaped some of the changes all the way from the beginning. The oldest document in the University of Oxford archives is the outcome of the riots in 1209. The university shut down after a bloody conflict between town and gown. Some of the members stay, of the university stayed away forever remaining in Cambridge. A townswoman had been murdered by a student, and the townspeople helpfully executed a different student in revenge. Membership of the university was key. A key focus of it at the time was theology. So there were clerks. They were in some form of clerical rule, and therefore this fell into that Plantagenet problem of the area of jurisdiction of the king over the church. This king, John, was currently ex excommunicated, and so it was the papal legate who was put in charge of sorting this out. He sided with the university, granting it powers over the town and putting its members beyond the authority of the town's authorities. Low-level disputes continued. If you look through the letters from the king to Oxford, there's all sorts of things about um, stopping uh, pigs roaming in the streets or stopping people slaughtering in the town because the smell was so bad. But this finally gets to a height at the riot that occurs in, on St Scholastica's Day. In 1345, some students and priests uh, were drinking in the Swindle Stock Tavern at Carfax, right in the heart of town, and started to complain about the quality of the wine. The landlord responded to the complaint with stubborn and saucy language, whereupon the student threw a quart pot over his head. Local people came to his aid, uh, and the bell was rung, and the university retaliated by rousing its students to lay into the fray. 
people came from outside the town to join in. And the riots took on a very, very serious effect. In all, 62 scholars were killed. The riots were severely punished afterwards. The king decided to punish the townsmen of Oxford with an annual ritual humiliation that continued for 500 years. Every since Scholastica's day thereafter, the mayor and bailiffs had to attend a mass for the souls of the dead and to swear an annual oath to observe the university's privileges. They had to bring 62 citizens with them, representing the number of scholars slain, and hand over 63 pence, usually in small silver coins. This kept getting regularised, so Queen Elizabeth enforced this rule and setting out the terms of the um, oath that people would have to swear. You shall swear that truly you shall observe and keep them all manner of lawful liberties and customs of the said university, which the Chancellor, Masters and Scholars of the said university have reasonably used without any gainsaying, saving your fidelity to the Queen's Majesty, so help you God. There was a moment where uh, at least one mayor decided not to play along. Thomas Dennis, the mayor in 1643, decided not to appear and was summoned. But his complaint of why he didn't come was the original reason was superstitious and perhaps they often jeered at by the scholars that they had to come and do this act. But it continued. Eventually, in the 19th century, they were let out of having to go to the church to deliver the money and were just invited round to the vice-chancellor's house where they would pay the money in a smaller ceremony. But finally, Mr Isaac Grubb, then the mayor, decides he wasn't going to play at all. He didn't turn up. But the good news was that after a certain amount of um, discussion in which it said that he stated in, in, stated in emphatic language what he'd be before he'd stand it, the university did nothing about his refusal and the ceremony stopped. There was a celebration uh, to uh, mark the end of this um, process, but that's it. No more trailing the University of Oxford um, the people of Oxford having to trail to the University of Oxford to give them 63 pence to make up for killing 63 scholars. Now, after the events at Sussex this week, my co-host and colleague Jim Dickinson is asking, when is free speech not really free speech? And where do we draw the line? Now, you'd have to have been living under a rock this week to have missed the coverage bow and controversy over Kathleen Stock, the so-called gender-critical academic at Sussex and the apparently student-led protests surrounding her continued employment. I won't go over the story itself, but what was notable was Minister for Further and Higher Education Michelle Donnellan in The Times opining on the issue. Much of the op-ed, standard stuff, you know, we are a nation whose democracy was founded on the idea and so on. Although there's various bits I thought that were notable. Early on, for example, Donnellan says she finds it completely deplorable that an academic is having to be protected by the police due to threats against her physical safety for her views, while she contends with a toxic campaign on social media. Now, this isn't to downplay the idea that stock has been subject to physical threats, although I'm struggling to find evidence of that. And I'll not indulge in whataboutery over the physical threats that are faced every day by trans people. The interesting bit, I think, is the cabinet minister identifying a toxic campaign on social media and not mentioning her own government's online safety bill. Perhaps because said bill as drafted wouldn't actually stop anything happening that has happened in this case, from what I can make out. A toxic campaign on social media in this context almost certainly involves A, anonymous trolling, 
B, people who aren't students, C, pylons and general unpleasantry, and D, legitimate critique of a public figure. And I don't see how the free speech bill or the online safety bill would actually impact any of those four things at all. There's a clever bit of writing on the theme of where you draw the line, where Donnellan says some people seem to be unable to distinguish between views they disagree with or that offend them and, and harassment and intimidation. She goes on, and even more worryingly, some then feel justified in threatening or harassing those they disagree with. In our society, physical intimidation, harassment and threats are always abhorrent. The problem, I think, is that you might struggle to frame what has happened in this case so far as harassment within the law, unless you were to write a code of conduct that goes beyond the law. And that gets us back to the problem the government has here over the free speech bill more generally. If you're protecting free speech within the law, you have to expect protect expression that you don't like, including, presumably, student protest, calling for someone to no longer work somewhere. Where Donnellan discusses the free speech bill, she says that it will force universities to end the culture where a small but vocal few believe they can threaten, intimidate and harass with impunity those with whom they disagree, take action against the perpetrators and put an end to those practices and policies that in too many universities have been allowed to create a chilling effect on free speech. But I'm struggling to see how what's in the bill would achieve those things, and I'm pretty familiar with its content. If we were to frame most of what students are reported to have done here as harassment rather than protest, we really are gliding towards the illiberal, not just in the way that Donnellan frames it. This is new and difficult territory, which I think has got less to do with arguments that some have made about the equivalence of the fascism that no platform was designed around in the 70s when compared with allegations surrounding stock, and has more to do with what happens when student protest isn't aimed at an MP or a visiting speaker, but an actual academic at an actual university. Ultimately, there are some that would look at what students have been doing and argue that the behaviour of the protesters is evidence of a free speech problem at the university. But there are others that would argue that the behaviour of the protesters represents evidence that free speech is alive and well at Sussex. Whether the free speech bill will end up protecting or requiring universities to clamp down on students in this context remains to be seen. And finally, RFS was on manoeuvres this week at the Independent Higher Education Conference. Smita, tell us what happened. Um, so, the, as you say, the, there was a uh, presentation at the Independent HE Conference from the RFS talking about uh, what their priorities were going to be um, in the in the near future. And I think the sort of central point that emerged from that was that the OFS sees itself as moving from a period when its initial focus was very much on how to get providers onto the register to now ensuring that those providers on the register are complying with the registration conditions to the required standard and taking enforcement action wherever um, they feel that that's not the case. And there were, as I was, as I was reflecting on this, there were a number of things that struck me. Um, I don't know if you recall, Mark, but several years ago we hosted an event in the British Library um, uh, that Wonky hosted. It's when alive. Nicola, it, it's alive, indeed. Yes, that's what it was called. And um, Nicola Dandridge was there and she sort of uh, was talking about the OFS, which was then being you know, very much in its infancy. And she was making the point that, yes, 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 we've been given all these regulatory powers, but of course we we, we don't expect we'll ever need to use them. Um, and I think at the time, a lot of us thought, well, once you've given a regulator powers, they inevitably do use them. That's just the nature of the, the regulatory um, beast. But um, the... Uh, so, so I suppose we've now reached that point in their development where they feel that they, they can start to really use the enforcement powers that are available to them, which are you know, extensive and potentially very, very serious for providers. 
There are still, to my mind, a few questions that remain unclear about enforcement in this particular sector. Um, I'm not convinced how easy it's going to be for the OFS to take enforcement action where it thinks it's necessary without damaging the interests of students at that provider. And the reason I say that is that in most other sectors where there is enforcement action, there are alternatives for the consumers who are affected by the, regu- the, the, the breaches that the regulators identify. They can move energy provider. They can book an airline, book a flight with a different airline. They can, you know, take their cars to a different garage. All those sorts of things are easy. But the students are where they are. They can't be moved without a great deal of disruption. And if you take serious enforcement action against a provider, you destabilise that provider. Maybe for good reason. You know, maybe they shouldn't be allowed to continue. But I'm really not sure we've quite thought through what then happens to the interests of students. Um, The second thing, and I think this is something that Susan um, Lapworth expressly alluded to in the presentation, was that regulation um, and and enforcement has a very important signalling side to it, that it tells other providers, this is a serious matter and you must not do this. But there's a kind of um, odd odd aspect to that, which says often that where the risk sits, if it sits with particularly vulnerable small providers, maybe providers that aren't you know, well-established, there's not a great deal of value in taking enforcement action against them in that sense of what signal it sends to the rest of the sector. Where you want to take the action is against big, well-known providers who are often not the ones who are particularly liable to, you know, um, breaches of the kind that could be enforced. There might be longer term issues that are harder to pin down to particular enforcement. So how valuable is that signalling of taking action against a small provider? And then the the final point um, that I wanted to make was that this will move the OFS's um, activities into a much more obviously legalistic area. So up till now, they've done a lot of things by way of guidance, by way of you know informal action, which is pretty hard to challenge. But once you move into hard-edged enforcement, you are going to face more legal challenges. Um, and I think we will start to see uh, some quite interesting reactions, perhaps, to enforcement decisions. And here's a clip of Susan Lapworth from OFS talking to the conference, setting out her thoughts. You you might remember that the statutory framework gives us powers to investigate cases where we're concerned about compliance. And it also gives us powers to enforce compliance with our conditions where we find a breach. So we can require a provider to do something or not do something to fix a breach. We can impose a monetary penalty we can suspend registration, which, which might involve turning off funding to, to, to providers, and we can deregister a provider if that proves necessary. That all sounds really fierce, and I can see your body language. It feels really fierce to talk about enforcement and, 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 and the statutory tools that, that, that are available to us. But we need to understand which of those enforcement tools work best in which circumstances. And and perhaps more importantly, what it is we want to achieve in using them. So what's the purpose of being fierce in in, in that sense? I guess the the, the simple answer to that question is, is, is that we want to create incentives for all providers to comply with their conditions of registration. So, for example, all regulators assume that imposing a monetary penalty, a fine, on one provider 
will result in all the others taking steps to comply without the regulator needing to, to get involved. So that's a really efficient way to, to, to secure compliance across a, a whole sector. And that's really important, particularly for a regulator like the OFS, where we, we deliberately don't come and run a registration process for each of you every, every three, four, five, six years. So we don't routinely come and check after we've registered you. So this does feel like an evolution, really, of of OFS's place in the sector. Then, given given what Smita says about uh, a kind of, I guess, a more legalistic tone, um, and then and then you couple couple that with, I guess, the job ahead of them is is, is different to the the one that's come before, isn't, isn't it? It's an odd situation for the regulator to be in. They're coming out of a period in which the regulatory system for higher education in England has been tested like an, um, never before, which is the, the worst period of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Now, I mean, you would think as a reflective regulator that this would be a moment to sit back to look at those experiences and think, okay, what have we learned from this? What have we learned from kind of basically testing the, the sector to to the um, brink of discussion. How can we actually be confident that we have supported the interests of students and the interests of the sector that supports those students to the best of our abilities? Now, the other issue here is of a model of change. There was an example given in the speech. Um, I'm not sure whether it's in the clip or not, but the suggestion was that perhaps the Office for Students might find a provider if they get their HESA submission in late, because that would mean all the other providers would think, oh, they got a f- fine for putting their submission in late. Um, why don't we make sure we get ours in early and avoid the fine? Now, this is not a great model of change, not least because there is already a late submits. Uh, a late submission fee for submitting stuff to HESA. And HESA are quite keen to avoid people paying this fee because they would rather work with a small and new provider to help them do something as complex as make a valid HESA return. Um, by working with the liaison team, by offering training and support. And if they're a couple of days late, they are so keen to be like, look, we want to make this happen. We want to help this. We know this is stressful. If you replace that with the idea of, oh, if you're late, there's a fine. You're going to worsen the quality of data collection because people are less likely to come to HESA and say, okay, we're struggling here a bit. We're going to need some more time. We're going to need some help because they're going to think that that's going to get them punished. It's a really it's not a helpful model of um, regulation. And as I think we proved during the uh, pandemic, the idea of regulation by shouting at people is not one that has really yielded any benefits for students. So the other uh, notable speaker at the IHE event, which was a great event, actually, really good stuff, um, was the skills minister, Alex uh, Birdhart. It was his first outing his uh, first speech in fact as skills minister and he started in a really interesting way he started by saying thank you to the sector he started to say he started by saying thank you meaningfully and it actually did feel sincere of um it did feel uh sincere i mean i've obviously heard gavin williamson doing this stuff before and it didn't wash but this felt like he meant it that he had some respect for the sector and he went on 
to name various members of IHC to praise the quality of the um, relationship that uh, DFE and IHC have. Um, and you just saw that in comparison with the speech from the regulator, and you think, why does it have to be so combative? Why do we want to treat providers like naughty school kids? It just doesn't make any sense to me. One of the other issues we've seen coming through responses to this consultation and, and the previous one, and that we expect to feature again when we do consult in more detail on, on student outcomes, is a view that there's a tension between, on the one hand, setting the same minimum requirements for all providers, and on the other hand, ensuring that students from underrepresented groups are able to enter and, and succeed in, in higher education. We've said before, and, and I, I guess we'll, we'll say again, we don't agree that there's a tension here. We take the view that, that all students whatever their background and whatever their characteristics, need to be confident that they'll have a high quality academic experience and, and successful outcomes. So students from those underrepresented groups shouldn't be expected to accept lower quality or weaker outcomes than other students. And, and that, that's the driver for us adopting a position that, that means that we don't set lower minimum requirements for providers that typically recruit from, from those kinds of, of student groups. We recognise, I, I think, that that can present a challenge for, for higher education providers. If you're recruiting students from underrepresented groups, we're saying that you need to give those students a high quality course and, and, and support them to succeed. And lots of you and lots of providers across the sector are doing exactly that. But some aren't doing it yet. We see providers that, that clearly provide opportunities for students to access higher education. But we also then see low continuation rates or, or disappointing levels of progression to employment or, or further study. And, and, and our regulatory attention needs to, to focus on providers that aren't there yet. What it reminds me of is the cliche advice given to um, first-time prisoners when they get to, to prison. Um, you know, go and fight with the biggest guy you think you can beat on your first day just to show the others that you're not going to be pushed around. Um, and OFS is sort of posturing and in that kind of a way that we're gonna we're gonna pick a fight with the biggest guy we can afford to pick a fight with um not with the very biggest because they'll beat us um and only show how weak we really are but we're going to be it, it's the signaling that smita was talking about but i mean this isn't this isn't really ofs's fault though because there's a basic contradiction in the he regulation system in england we have institutional autonomy which is enshrined in the very same law that created the regulator to restrict that autonomy it, it, this creates an impossible task for the regulator to show muscle but not show too much uh, um, and ofs is full of good people who do understand that the very autonomy that that they're trying to compromise or that they're tasked with compromising is part of the reason for the success of uk higher education Almost all institutions do a good job for their students almost all of the time. Obviously, there are exceptions. Um, and we have 
a system for complaints um, and not not to mention of course the legal system as well um, but one of the things that gets in the way of institutions doing a good job is having their eye taken off the ball by heavy-handed regulation or judgment being judged by the wrong standards or the right standards but poor proxy metrics to measure those standards and um, so OFS before it starts throwing its weight around, uh, should um, make sure that it's that the, the muscle it, it intends to exert is fit for purpose. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to our website to find out more about our various subscription services. So thanks very much to Johnny, DK, Smeeter and everyone at Team Wonky that makes it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky.